Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. In today's episode of the Luke 5020 plan, we're diving into the second half of chapter 5, where we'll see Jesus do some pretty major healing. But this time, it'll be a bit more controversial because he'll also claim the power to forgive sins. Jesus will call Matthew as his disciple. And all the while, the Pharisees are around and they have a lot of questions for and about Jesus. Let's dive in. So first off, you'll have to excuse me because I do have a little bit of a cold. So I'm sorry if my voice is a little bit messy today, but we're still going to do this. All right. Let's get started by reading together in chapter 5, verse 17. On one of those days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, Why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher and go home. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. And they were filled with awe and said, We have seen incredible things today. As always, we want to approach the Word of God first by zooming out and making sure we understand the text as it's presented to us, without making any analysis or inserting our modern-day lens on things. So what's happening here? Well, we find Jesus on a day where he's teaching. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem to hear him teach. Luke tells us that the Lord's power to heal was in Jesus, which is a great thing because it so happens that some men come carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher through the roof in the middle of the crowd. Jesus sees their faith and says something rather strange and unexpected. Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and scribes start thinking and wondering, to themselves at this point, that Jesus is blaspheming because who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceives their thoughts and responds to their questions by challenging them, asking them why they're thinking this way. He goes on to ask them a question. Which is easier, saying your sins are forgiven or saying get up and walk? Jesus goes the extra mile. He proves to the Pharisees that he, as the Son of Man, has the authority on earth to forgive sins by healing the paralyzed man and telling him to get up, take your stretcher, and go home. 
Immediately, the man gets up, picks up his mat, and goes home, glorifying God all the way. Everyone is astounded, and they too give glory to God, saying, we have seen incredible things today. All right, so here we go. Things are starting to heat up for Jesus because finally, we see that the Pharisees are here to check him out. Luke tells us that they have come from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem and are here to listen to Jesus teach. So all this news that's been spreading about Jesus seems to have finally piqued enough of their interest, and now they're here to see what Jesus is all about. But who exactly are the Pharisees anyway? I did some digging in Logos Bible software for this and found some really helpful information here. The Pharisees are, by definition, an important Jewish sect at the time of Jesus that was devoted to exact observance of the Jewish religion. The origin of the term Pharisee comes from the Aramaic word, and I'm not sure how to say this, so I'll spell it, P-R-S-H, Persh, maybe, which means to separate, divide, or distinguish. They became the primary voice of Judaism following the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. The Pharisees developed a tradition of strict interpretation of the Mosaic law, including an extensive set of oral extensions of the law designed to maintain religious identity and purity. To be more specific about this, there were 613 commands in the Old Testament, which is plenty enough to be going on with. But the Pharisees added over 1,500 additional laws for the people to obey. That's well over twice as many laws as God himself thought were enough. No wonder we still continue to struggle with the deeply ingrained effects of legalism in our modern religious culture today. So, those are the Pharisees, and you can start to see already why Jesus might have an issue with this particular group during his time on earth, and why they might have a problem with him. But in any case, they have officially arrived on Jesus' scene here in this passage. Also, Luke tells us that the Lord's power to heal was in Jesus. I think this is an interesting note, one which I kind of have a question about. My initial response is to say, well, yeah, isn't the Lord's power to heal always in Jesus? He is still fully God after all, so would that power ever not be in him? But then again, looking ahead at a miracle we haven't yet discussed on the podcast, we also know that Jesus ends up healing the woman with the issue of blood, who has been bleeding for 12 years with no answer or cure. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment without Jesus knowing about it or speaking healing over her. And Jesus responds by asking the crowd around him, Who touched me? For I felt power go out of me. So indeed, I think there's something to be said here about Jesus' dependence upon his Father, particularly while on the earth. Jesus truly became the Son of Man on this earth, as he refers to himself in this passage. And even though he is never not God or divine, I love that here we continue to see Jesus working through and with and in complete connection to his Father. He will later go on to say that he only does the will of his Father on earth. And we see that reflected here, that it is the Father's will that Jesus was filled with the power to heal on this particular occasion. Here is an interesting note about Jesus as a healer, taken from the abridged version of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Healing is often by word, 
not in the sense of magic, but by Jesus' word of command in answer to appeals for help and in virtue of the power received in prayer. A precondition and consequence is faith. Jesus himself has faith, demands it of those whom he heals, and promises power to the disciples only as they have faith. The faith required, however, is not a belief in the credibility of the miracles themselves, but faith in Jesus. It involves a relationship of trust, a conviction of God's power, and the resultant commitment of obedience. This faith receives not merely physical healing, but the full health of salvation. This is exactly what we see at play here in this story. Jesus is the healer, the physician, who has been equipped with power from the Lord to do the Lord's will on earth in this moment. Not only that, but part of healing, in fact the very most important part of healing, is the forgiveness of sins, bringing about the result of salvation. As to the necessary faith, Jesus clearly sees such faith in this man and his group of friends, as they are willing to come down through the roof in the middle of a crowd to receive the healing they seek. So Jesus sees their faith and responds by saying, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And again, it's here that I would certainly have a question. We can assume that the paralyzed man wasn't exactly here for or expecting forgiveness of sins. I have to say that I probably would have responded with disappointment. Like, I came all this way, went through all this hassle, put my friends through all of this, to be bodily healed. Because after all, at this point in time, there are other means of receiving atonement through offerings and animal sacrifices. So why would I need to seek Jesus to receive that? Regardless, this is what Jesus says, and it's a super controversial statement. Because now, Jesus is not only performing healing miracles and teaching scripture, but he's claiming to have the power to forgive sins, which the Pharisees and the crowd know, only God can do that. The Pharisees don't challenge Jesus verbally at this point, but it doesn't matter because Jesus knows what they're thinking, and Jesus wants to go there with them. He wants to talk about this in front of this crowd, because this is exactly why he's here on the earth, to offer full and complete forgiveness of sins to those who repent and believe. So he asks the Pharisees why they're thinking this way in their hearts. Which again, I have to admit, I think it's obvious why they're thinking that. I would be thinking the same thing if I were them. Jesus continues on saying, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? This is kind of a trick question. Because both of these actions are really not possible by human hands. But you can say with your words, that you forgive someone's sins more easily than you can tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk. Because with one, you can prove that there's no more paralysis, but with the other, you can't tangibly, concretely prove that the sins were actually forgiven. So Jesus goes on and says this, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he does the harder thing to prove by healing the paralyzed man in front of their eyes. Basically saying to them, if I can command this man to get up and walk and prove to you that he's no longer paralyzed, then I can also forgive sins 
because I am who I say I am and can do what I say I can do. For what it's worth, I do think Jesus always intended to physically heal the man, but he also wanted to use this moment in time to announce and demonstrate this extremely important aspect of who he is. He is the Son of Man, meaning born of a human on the earth, and he has been given the authority to forgive sins. This authority can only come from God. Not just that, but this authority can only belong to God. So Jesus is in essence saying he is both fully human and fully God, and he can forgive sins. All of this has never been true before of anyone on earth, and never will be again. He says the proof of this comes from the fact that if he can heal a paralyzed man, which is humanly impossible to do, then his divine claim to be able to forgive sins is also legitimate. So Jesus heals the paralytic right in front of the whole crowd, and everyone is super amazed. The man gets up, picks up his mat, and glorifies God just like Jesus tells him to. I mean, who wouldn't? I bet he was dancing all the way home. I know I would have been. And everyone else in the crowd is full of awe and wonder at what they've just seen. And they too glorify God. I think this is important, that part of this man's healing includes the glorification of God. It's important that Jesus includes it explicitly in his instructions to the man for a couple of reasons. One, it adds to the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to have authority to heal and forgive sins. Because he doesn't tell the man to glorify him, he tells the man to glorify God. Jesus is not looking for his own fame on the earth, but is always looking to glorify his Father in heaven with everything he does. And two, it's instructive for those people and for us today that we should be intentional to glorify God with our testimonies of what God has done for us. One quick thing before we move on. Many of the other healing miracles to this point had Jesus telling the recipient to be quiet and not say anything about what had happened. Here, we see the opposite. Jesus performs this miracle in front of the crowd and with explicit instruction to glorify God in the process. This doesn't make Jesus a hypocrite, and it doesn't mean he was just embarrassed in those other times or now he's just getting bolder. It's because of timing and circumstance. Jesus has always wanted the news and notice of him to be timed properly in accordance with his Father's will to be in the right place at the right time and not move ahead of God or fall behind what God's doing. Since the Pharisees are now here on the scene and things are in motion with his ministry, the time is right for each of these people to know who he is. All right, so let's keep going and read together in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
All right, so let's zoom out on what's happening here. So after this whole event with the paralyzed man and the Pharisees, Jesus goes out and sees a tax collector named Levi, or more commonly known by us as Matthew. Levi is the Hebrew name, while Matthew is the Greek name, but they're the same name and the same person. And in fact, he's the same Matthew who wrote one of the four Gospels. Anyway, so Matthew is sitting at his tax office and Jesus comes and bids him to follow me. Matthew leaves everything behind, gets up, and follows Jesus. Then, Matthew hosts a grand party for Jesus at his house. In the room are some tax collectors. The Pharisees see this and start complaining to Jesus' disciples, asking why Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus responds to them that it is not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick ones, that he has not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Ooh, I just love this story because now we're getting spicy. So after the healing of the paralyzed man, Jesus sees a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew. Let's just pause right here. Tax collectors were decidedly not the favorite of society. I mean, seriously, are they even now, in our day? Often, tax collectors in those times would cheat the people of their wages. They wouldn't collect taxes fairly, but would actually steal from people. What's interesting is that Jewish religious leaders often thought of tax collectors as ceremonially unclean and would exclude them from their activities. But John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, would baptize tax collectors and, instead of urging them to change professions, would just instruct them to collect no more than you've been ordered to. And Jesus himself agreed that paying taxes was a moral thing to do but he took issue with the corruption often found among them. True to his word, tax collectors were among the lost that Jesus came to find. They were among the sick that Jesus came to heal. And we see that here in the example of Matthew. So Matthew is a tax collector, but Jesus decides to change his life and invites Matthew to follow him. Matthew, similar to Simon and the other first disciples we just talked about in the previous episode, leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. Again, we see this radical, immediate obedience, and we have no clues in the text that would suggest what prompts that kind of response. There's also nothing in the text to suggest that this wouldn't be the most ordinary and expected way to respond to Jesus. Regardless, those of us who know Jesus and have relationship with him can probably relate in that Jesus really just is that compelling. He is that worthy. Not just that, but it is innately and instinctually wired within us, within our hearts that long for eternity and connection with our Creator, that we would want to be where Jesus is. He is what each of our hearts is looking and longing for. So Matthew drops everything to follow Jesus. We then fast forward to a grand banquet that Matthew is hosting in his home for Jesus. It probably wasn't too long after Matthew starts following Jesus, but the text doesn't really give us any time clues here. In any case, here we get a glimpse of the kind of lavish lifestyle Matthew must be leaving behind to follow Jesus, and it would appear that he hasn't fully left it behind yet since he's throwing this banquet. I will say, I can imagine it being more difficult to leave behind the good life like it would seem Matthew has here than it would be to leave behind a struggling life. Then again, 
Because of his occupation, I wonder if Matthew has very many true friends or family. In any case, he hasn't physically left that lifestyle yet, but in this moment he is repurposing it for the point of welcoming Jesus. The text tells us that there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others present at this party, which basically just lets us know that there are a bunch of recognized, bona fide sinners here in this place with Jesus. And the Pharisees clearly just don't understand this, and they judge Jesus, who is at this point a fellow teacher of the law and who is also performing miracles and forgiving sins with the power of God. They ask him point blank, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds with the sort of answer that will become his trademark. It's not a very direct answer, but rather a sort of illustrative non-answer that those with ears to hear will hear and understand, and those who don't have ears to hear will not understand. He says, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Well, yeah, that certainly makes sense. If Jesus is going to make this big deal about being able to forgive sins, then why would he avoid being around those who need to be forgiven of their sins? Jesus illustrates his point further. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think this second piece is quite interesting for him to say, because it would sound like Jesus is saying that there's a whole group of people that Jesus didn't come here to save, the righteous. And that would be the group that would seemingly be the most deserving of God's attention. Is Jesus saying he doesn't want or care about the righteous? No, no. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is Jesus is letting the Pharisees know that Jesus came to rescue anyone who recognizes their need of being rescued. There are people on this earth who immediately are aware of their own depravity and they know deep in their bones they need a savior. And then there are people on the earth who believe that they don't need a savior because they're good and they do good all of their own making. They do everything right, and therefore they must have earned their spot in heaven by their own virtue. I think we can understand what this looks like even today, as there are many people who believe that all it takes to have a good afterlife is to be good and do good here on earth. But Jesus is saying he came to connect and rescue those who acknowledge their need for rescue, that he will never turn down anyone who seeks him as their savior. But for those who can't see or seek that, well, he won't be able to rescue them because not only will they not believe in him to save, but they also will be offended by the very notion of the idea that they need saving at all. It is this blindness and hardness of heart that keeps people like this in the dark, unable to see the light right before them. One quick note. This is not to suggest that we should forsake doing good works on the earth. Far from that, and I think scripture would totally back that up. But rather, our ability and desire to do good should not be because we're trying to earn God's love or because we think we've got it all figured out as to how to get into heaven on our own. It should overflow from the fact that we already are loved and that our names are written in the book of life when we profess our devotion to Jesus Christ. That kind of love 
And that knowledge that we are going to have eternity with our Father in heaven, that's what should spur on our good works on this earth. So anyway, yeah, Jesus is here for the sick and for the hurting, for those who have open hearts and open minds to the idea of repentance for their sins, because they know there has to be more than what their sin has wrought for them, and they're right. Wrapping up today's episode, let's read the last verses that started in verse 33. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants new because he says the old is better. All right, so one more time, let's zoom out and see what's going on here. It would seem that we're still at the party, because the Pharisees aren't done asking Jesus questions. They point out that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees all do a lot of fasting and praying, but Jesus' disciples eat and drink. Jesus responds to them again in a rather cryptic, sort of non-answer kind of way, By saying that you can't make wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, what would be the point in that? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away, and that's when they will fast. Then Jesus dives right into a parable of teaching, talking about new and old garments and new and old wineskins. So, we're still at the party, and the Pharisees still have questions for Jesus. But keep in mind, these questions are not rooted in genuine curiosity about Jesus. They're rooted in judgment and wanting to call Jesus out. So here the Pharisees are questioning why his disciples don't do what they're supposed to do according to the law. They point out that John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees do a lot of fasting and praying, but Jesus' disciples don't. The Pharisees are trying to point out that Jesus is a hypocrite and is acting out of order to not expect praying and fasting from his own disciples. But Jesus, of course, is ready with a response to them. Yet again, it's not this straightforward answer, but rather another illustration that paints a picture of who he is. The first illustration that we had was this idea of a doctor coming to heal the sick. Now, we have an illustration of a bridegroom at a wedding. Jesus says that basically it would be silly and kind of crazy to expect wedding guests to fast while the groom is with them. I mean, who goes to a wedding and doesn't eat and drink in celebration? No one. It's the same here with Jesus. And it's important enough to point out that he's calling himself the groom of this wedding. That's a pretty big claim. We don't have time to study that today, but I'm sure we'll hit on that in future episodes, so stay tuned. Anyway, Jesus does let them know that the time will come when this groom will be taken away from them, 
And this is the first time where Jesus is alluding to the suffering to come, his time on the cross and his death, resurrection, and ascension back to heaven. And Jesus says when that happens, they will certainly fast and pray. Then Jesus goes even deeper and responds with a parable about old and new wineskins. This is even more cryptic and difficult to decipher than these other rather simple illustrations so far. He says no one uses a piece of cloth from a new garment to repair the hole in an old garment, because not only will that ruin the new garment, but it won't match the old garment, basically ruining both. Likewise, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Just to clarify what a wineskin is, it was a container or sack made from animal skin to hold wine. Jesus says that if you put new wine into old wineskins, the wineskins will burst and spill the wine and ruin the wineskin. New wine has to go into fresh new wineskins. This might seem like a weird example unless you understand the difference between new and old wineskins and unless you understand what actually happens with new wine in the skins. See, if the wineskin is new, it can expand. Unlike an old wineskin, which at that point is not as pliable and is rather going to be brittle and unable to expand. This expansion is important with new wine because new wine needs to have somewhere for its fermentation process to continue safely. The fermentation needs a container that can expand because fermentation creates gases. Without any place for those gases to expand into, such as a pliable new wineskin, then it will just cause its container to burst. So now you understand what Jesus is getting at here. If you try to use a new cloth to repair an old garment, you will ruin both the old and the new garment. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin, you will ruin both the wine and the wineskin. But why is Jesus talking about this? In essence, Jesus is preparing them for the truth that sticking to the old ways of the old covenant isn't going to work because Jesus is here to do a new thing. He is the very essence and arbiter of the new covenant, the one that God foretold to his people through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus' new way of doing things will not fit the old mold. His new wine will break the old wineskins of the old religious paradigm. His new cloth will not match the old garment. And so it's time for the Jewish people to get with the program to become new wineskins, able to hold the new wine of Jesus, so they can receive him and his way fully and completely. And that segues nicely into the last verse of this section, where Jesus says that no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, because he says the old is better. And that is a very sobering thought, pun absolutely intended. Because Jesus is saying, that he already knows many of the Jewish people who have been waiting for the Messiah for a very long time won't actually recognize him and they won't want him because he won't look or act the way they expect him to. So instead, they will choose to cling to the old. They will cling to what they know, to the taste they recognize, to the things they already comprehend and understand. Not all of them, But many of them will reject the new wine of Jesus for the old wine of the Pharisees. There's so much more that could be said and studied on this, obviously, and I encourage you to do so. But for today, I pray that we would be like new wineskins, 
ready to forego any of the old wine of legalism and performative religion, and instead receive the new wine, the new ways, the new covenant of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.